Good afternoon and welcome to this Euractiv virtual conference on hydrogen emissions. What implications for the green transition? This program is supported by the Environmental Defence Fund. I'm Brian McGuire. You can follow this discussion at hashtag EA Debates. Uh, please tweet your comments there. Our social media team uh, will interact with you uh, directly. And to ask questions today, we're using Slido. You'll see it on the side of your screen. Uh, use the chat section, use the ask button, and our hashtag today is hydrogen. So hashtag hydrogen uh, for Slido. Uh, we will uh, have uh, no female participation on the panel today. We'd like to apologize for that. We had invited, uh, some, had, uh, some women had uh, agreed to participate. They weren't able to in the end. And so just to be clear, it's always our intention to do that. So the discussion today is focused on the European Union and why it's placed hydrogen at the forefront of its ambitious climate neutrality goals. It aims to harness the potential of hydrogen in various sectors, including industry, transport and energy production to help achieve Europe's target of becoming carbon neutral by 2050. However, hydrogen can create several climate challenges depending on how it is produced, managed and used. To date, hydrogen leakage has been seen as a safety concern. It can cause significant near-term warming by increasing amounts of short-lived uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere through chemical reactions. And depending on how much is emitted, anticipated climate benefits can be severely undercut in the near term. Ensuring hydrogen is deployed strategically and effectively is therefore crucial. To discuss the latest science on hydrogen emissions and its implications, we have with us today uh, Jose Bermudez, uh, Energy Technology Analyst at IEA, Steve Hamburg, Chief Scientist at Environmental Defence Fund, and uh, Jan Rosenau, Director of European Programmes and Regulatory Assistance uh, Project. We're going to begin today uh, with a, a scientific presentation by Steve Hamburg. Steve, are you with us there? And so um, I just wanted to say a few words about the Environmental Defense Fund as we start. Um, it was uh, founded uh, 60, uh, 56 years ago, excuse me, um, by a group of scientists who had a strong understanding of the science, but didn't feel like they could have impact. And the issue they were working on was the impacts of DDT on birds of prey. So they hired a lawyer and got together and EDF has been a science-based organization ever since. We currently work in about 30 countries with four core regions, um, China, India, the US, and the EU. Um, and I just would like to say that Helen Spence Jackson is uh, our new executive director and she's based in Brussels. We got involved in thinking about hydrogen as those original founders did because we realized the conversation was missing a critical part of the, the considerations, which was the issue of hydrogen's indirect effects on the climate. Um, hydrogen is a strong greenhouse, indirect greenhouse gas, and that was not part of the conversation. Um, as you just said, uh, people were thinking about safety, which is critically important, but we also needed to make sure that we were getting the use of hydrogen correct, and we were gonna be able to ensure that we get the benefits that we wanted. The path to decarbonization is littered with well-intentioned missteps. We don't have the time to repeat this uh, again with hydrogen. If I can have the first uh, slide, please. So as was mentioned, um, hydrogen has impacts on the climate. People often don't recognize that because it's not direct greenhouse gas. So it is not itself changing the energetics of the atmosphere. But hydrogen reacts with hydroxyl radical OH. And by doing that, 
it actually reduces the concentration of hydroxyl radical, which is the key way that methane breaks down in the atmosphere. So if we add more hydrogen to the atmosphere, the methane in the atmosphere will stick around longer and have more impacts. And as most of you probably know, methane is a very potent short-lived greenhouse gas that's responsible for about 30% of the warming we currently experience. And the fastest thing we can do is to reduce methane uh, now to slow the rate of warming in the near term while we reduce our CO2 emissions. And at EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, we've gotten involved in this work as we've been working for 13 years on building an understanding of the emissions of methane around the world. How much is being emitted, where they're coming from, because without that kind of data, we can't reduce methane. And similarly, if we don't have that kind of data, we won't be able to reduce hydrogen emissions either. Um, in addition to the effects on methane, it affects tropospheric ozone um, near the surface of the earth. That's also through a series of chemical reactions, which is also a, a, an important um, source of warming. And then if it gets into the upper atmosphere, it produces more water vapor when it breaks down. Um, and that is also a source of warming. Next slide, please. So we need to, we can integrate this by thinking about how that hydrogen impacts the climate over time. So if we're thinking about only the very long-term, hundreds of years, we're not gonna worry a lot about hydrogen because it doesn't persist that long in the atmosphere. The molecule itself lasts a couple of years, but its impacts last about a decade, very comparable to methane, because in fact, its mechanism of impact is related to methane. So it is, it, it, over time, it, the, those impacts decline, but it's really important that we not just focus, as we said, we care about the near term. Many of our policies are directed towards 2050, and we need to make sure that we are addressing the issues that get us to net zero with no additional warming in that time frame. So what we want to think about is how do we reduce the short-term, near-term impacts while we get the long-term benefits. We have to accomplish two things at the same time if we're going to meet our goals for the climate. There's been a growing effort to look at the science around hydrogen impacts. There's growing consensus on the impact, these global warming potentials. Um, and you see the numbers here. There's a vibrant scientific community now looking at it, which I, I'm pleased uh, that is occurring. Next slide, please. So there really are two things we need to have. We need to have this scientific consensus on the warming effects, which we are now building and is, is, is increasingly robust. And we need to know how much hydrogen is being lost to the atmosphere. Unfortunately, at this point, we have no idea how much hydrogen is being lost to the atmosphere because no one was really paying much attention to it. While it's often said that you wouldn't lose that hydrogen, you wouldn't allow it to go to the atmosphere because it's a valuable product, that doesn't in fact mean that it is not being lost because we didn't have the, we don't currently have the instruments to make the measurements to be sure we're not losing it. We have instruments that allow us to make sure the levels of hydrogen are below um, dangerous thresholds, but there's an enormous gap between those levels that are going to cause safety issues and having no emissions. The estimates of emissions currently are 
broad and wide. We did a, we have a paper, we're happy to send it to you, that was published in the scientific literature that just surveyed every estimate that was out there. And it's dramatically broad in, in the estimates. And they're really not grounded with good data. So what we've done is started to uh, develop a way to, to measure it. So we've been working with Aerodyne Research. They've developed the first fast response, high precision instrument that's capable of looking at hydrogen emissions coming from different infrastructure. We will receive the first two instruments uh, next month and working with uh, several companies around the world, as well as academic researchers, we'll be starting to make the measurements of hydrogen emissions coming from existing infrastructure so we can begin to ground this conversation with empirical data. This is exactly what we needed to do a dozen years ago for methane. And we, of course, now know a lot and are able to take uh, effective action moving forward. So this lack of knowledge is critical. We need to ensure that policies moving forward recognize that we need these kinds of data and we really need to make integral to any kind of policy issues, we need to be sure to include um, the reduction and minimization of those emissions. Next slide, please. So one of the things, how important is hydrogen? Next click. How important is hydrogen relative to its impacts on climate? So we can think about it relative to fossil fuels. Next click, please. And we can compare the production of blue hydrogen which is going to have associated emissions from methane, from upstream production of natural gas, as well as hydrogen from the production and use of, of, of it directly. Or green hydrogen, where you're using green electrons to produce the hydrogen, but we also have to worry about losses of hydrogen from the value chain. Next click, please. And if we assume, which is just a, a rough range, that for methane lost for making blue hydrogen, it could be from one to 3% in the supply chain. That's not by any means the maximum. There are places where um, supply chains in which those emissions are much higher than 3%. There are a few where it's below 1%, but they're very limited. So this represents a sort of middle range. And for hydrogen, we assume the emissions were from one to 10%. And that's again, a rough range. We know there are systems which are most likely higher than 10% and they're potentially lower than 1%. But it's important to remember that hydrogen is the smallest molecule. It's very slippery, as they referred to in the, in the chemistry world. And as a result, it, it's under the physics, based on physics, it's going to leak at a faster rate than methane. It's hard to hold on to. So getting a zero emissions hydrogen system is certainly our aspiration but it is not going to be something that's going to be easy to accomplish. Next click, please. So we put this all together to look at the climate effects of a range of emissions associated with production and use of blue hydrogen and production and use of green hydrogen in the near term, over 20 years and over 100 years. And what this figure shows that if we have high emission scenarios for production of blue hydrogen, it could even be worse than using the fossil fuel in the near term. It could be better than the fossil fuel in the near term, but it's still not going to be 100%. You're going to have climate impacts. With green hydrogen, it's the same story, though better because you don't have the methane involved. And because it's a short-lived climate pollutant, over time, those impacts become less relative to if we'd use fossil fuels. The key take-home message here is that 
if we are going to use hydrogen and we don't control emissions, we will greatly undercut the impact of doing so on decarbonization. If we want to realize hydrogen as a powerful tool, we need to make sure we use it in places and in ways that we can minimize these losses and we can quantify them as we go along, which will now be possible because of new technologies uh, to make those measurements. And that will allow us to effectively utilize hydrogen as a powerful tool. But we have to use it in the right places under the right conditions. So thanks, that's the end of the slides. I would just conclude by we really need to make sure we get this right. We have a powerful tool, but we shouldn't assume it's the effective tool for solving all of our decarbonization problems, but rather it's a tool used in the right place in the right time, as I mentioned, with the right data. We need to go out and collect that data and apply that to this problem. I will mention that the Environmental Defense Fund will have a booth at the European Hydrogen Week in Brussels next week and encourage folks to step by. Thank you very much. Steve, thank you so much. That was concise and clear. A great start to the program today. I'm going to ask our other two panelists if they can just do a short introduction as well as the key points they want to get across today, and then we'll go into the discussion. Just to remind you for Slido, hashtag hydrogen, and you can send your questions in there. Our team will forward those to me. I'll put them to, to the panel throughout the course of the program. We're not going to bring them all at the end, so you can send them in uh, right now and throughout the course of the discussion. So, uh, Jose, I, can I ask you to kick off just with your, your highlights for today? Yeah, thank you very much, Brian. And thanks, Farol, thanks first of all, for the, for the invitation to this discussion. Uh, I'm really pleased to be here and to have the opportunity to discuss with Steve and John that I have been following their, um, all their messages over the last few years. And I, I really like to have the opportunity to speak with them. Um, I think Steve has Great, uh, has made a great presentation, opening to to put us in, into the into the topic and and what's the challenge, no? And I and I want to highlight something that he mentioned, which is that this problem has been this problem has been quite overseen uh, in the in the last few years, and the fact that we are having now these conversations and more evidence and more research on the topic, I think this these are great news. Um, because I think that the big problem that we are facing in, in, in this challenge is the lack of uh, scientific evidence concretely on the topic of, of, of leakage. Um, even, even on the warming, uh, global warming potential of, of hydrogen, this, this is a topic that has been itself been overseen for, for quite a while. Actually, if, if, we, if we realize the, the references that one of the slides that Steve presented, uh, all of them come from the, from the last, uh, uh, last two years. No? But I think uh, now that this is this is progressing, I think what what we really need to to act uh, seriously is on the on the potential problem of, of leakage. Um, so I, I think uh, we we need to make a, a really strong effort on on collecting information and, and and gathering data and understanding much better the the, the problem in all sort of equipment that uses hydrogen and, and and we can think even to the smallest uh, type of equipment in valves in pipes in tanks in every single piece of equipment that that, that has a joint where hydrogen can can leak. And, and for this, I think uh, we need to, to step up efforts in, in two aspects. On, on one side is on the, on the innovation side. Uh, we, we still don't have the tools that can help us on, on, on doing this on a continuous basis, on an open field. 
and or at least not an affordable cost. Um, and this is because the, the hydrogen detectors, uh, which is the, the first thing that we need for this so far, have been focused more on, on the safety hazards, uh, and they are fit for, for measuring um, uh, levels of, of, of hydrogen leakage which are above the flammability limit. No? And, and here we are speaking about other types of, of, uh, of uh, leakages that could be the real problem, which are the really small leakages that we will not detect if they are below the flammability limit. And, and, and now we know that there are uh, more research, more innovation on, on this side, and I think this, this is all good news. And probably this was spurred by, by the work that the EDF, uh, EDF has, has done, so, so kudos for, for EDF on, on this. And the other aspect when we need to start working is on, on regulations. So we need to make sure that companies that enter in this new wave on, of the hydrogen, uh, the hydrogen uh, uh, sector uh, they prioritize uh, measurements, uh, so the measures to, to detect and to monitor hydrogen leakage. Same as in the case of what we have done, uh, or where we are doing today on methane in many parts of the world. Unfortunately, not everywhere. Um, and, and this is not an easy task, uh, because I said we still don't have the commercial tubes to do this job. So it's, it's difficult then to, to regulate and to force companies to do things when they don't have the, the, the equipment that are commercially available. Um, and I would like to finish with a clarification on, on this last comparison uh, with the case of, of methane, because it's something that uh, many people is putting on the table, and I think there is is, is not a great uh, parallelism for for re for a few reasons. First, first of all, methane is a direct uh, greenhouse gas, something that hydrogen is not. So it produces hydrogen where it is used or where it is uh, leaked, but also but also in its use because it also generates other other uh, potent greenhouse gases, which is not the case of of hydrogen. And, and another thing, I think uh, Steve touched on, on this point, and, and maybe this is a point in which we are going to disagree, but, but that's fantastic because we can learn from each other. Hydrogen, or, or particularly, and I want to put the spotlight on low emission hydrogen, either green or blue. Normally, in the IEA, we don't use colors, but for easiness in the, in the discussion, let's use them. Um, it's going to be quite expensive. Um, uh, sometimes, something that methane, in many cases, is, is not, or depending on the time, it is or is not. Um, and there is an, a strong high incentive for companies that are going to make business out of hydrogen um, to, to take seriously the issue of leakage. However, even considering this point, and, and uh, even considering that, that uh, the, uh, I think that the, the potential impact of hydrogen on global warming is going to be limited, I think that this, is, this cannot be an excuse not to do everyone, not to everyone do its own homework. So we really need to learn from the experience on what we have done natural gas so far and act early on to avoid undesirable situations even if they, are, if they seem to be unlikely. Yeah, and over to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Brian. Um, I mean, I look at this very much uh, from an end user perspective, and I think the points that Steve made and also Jose um, just show once again that we need to take a very much scientifically informed approach when we think about the potential end users uh, of hydrogen. You know, which sectors should we use hydrogen? We have some very ambitious targets in Europe, uh, you know, 20 million tons of hydrogen. Uh, green hydrogen by 2030, 10 million tons to be produced in Europe and the other 10 million tons to be imported. And at times uh, the debate really seemed like we would hydrogen, be using hydrogen in all of the sectors. We'd use it for cars, you know, for heating, um, in industry, shipping, aviation. 
and clearly that is not going to be a realistic option and the issue of uh, emissions and of the global warming potential of hydrogen i think to me just demonstrates that it's even more important in addition to the economic uh, and practical considerations around using hydrogen in all these sectors we now have to take into account the potential you know impact on climate um, and on global warming so it's it's paramount i think that we take an evidence-based approach that we avoid to focus on end users that are clearly are not going to play a major role uh, in the future for hydrogen actually the european commission's hydrogen strategy um, and the sector integration strategy are quite clear uh, in prioritizing hydrogen only there where it's absolutely needed and not focus on technologies uh, such as hydrogen in areas where we have better alternatives you know for example um, electric vehicles um, are unlikely to lose the race against hydrogen vehicles or in buildings you know we can use heat pumps instead of hydrogen boilers but really focus um, the hydrogen deployment on those sectors where there is no alternative industry clearly um, is a major sector that will need lots of hydrogen already uses lots of hydrogen but it's currently based on fossil fuels and then also, of course, we will need um, at least some form of hydrogen derivatives for shipping and possibly aviation too. Um, so I think that that is an important part of the debate. Uh, I think it's directly connected to the more upstream discussion around the leakage and the global warming impacts um, of, of hydrogen. So I hope we can, we can use this um, as an encouragement to have a much more nuanced debate about this topic um, which I think uh, is is desperately needed, given that we are far behind. You know, the latest data I saw from Bloomberg New Energy Finance just this morning suggests that there's um, about 10% of buyers for the capacity plan for 2030 for hydrogen production. So we have a real problem, I think, to make sure we actually get the deployment right. Um, and this topic of emissions, I think, just um, amplifies that the need for that. Thank you, Jan. Uh, the deployment and the investment, we're going to come to that a little bit later on, but let's start uh, now with technology and data. And uh, Steve, you, you spoke a bit about this, but let's drill down a little bit. What data is needed and what technology do we have available? You mentioned uh, Airdyne uh, working with them you know, in terms of scalability and, and accuracy as well. So let's start with the data. What data is needed? Well, we need data on just understanding uh, how much hydrogen is lost along the value chain. So if you're using a hydrogen vehicle, just the fact that you have to put hydrogen from a uh, some kind of container system where it's held at the, uh, the fueling station into the vehicle, and then you're using the vehicle on the roads, which are, are rough, how much is lost? Um, we don't have, a, nobody has any estimate of that. And uh, we don't have data in the, uh, when you do electrolysis, how much is vented? You know, there are various opinions. You ask people, they give you a lot of different impressions. We need that data. So while I agree with uh, most of what Jose said about um, his comments, where I disagree is we found with methane and where I think it's applicable is that until we measured, people didn't realize how their systems actually operated. They were losing product and they would tell you they're not because it was it was worth not losing or they designed the system. We were, we're pretty confident that's happening. What we can't do and we can all take bets uh, is how much of it is being lost. So we have this one new instrument coming out of Aerodyne that allows us to make those measurements accurately and quickly using really good science. Uh, we've demonstrated that at MeTech with third parties. Um, and we're now working with the industry to make those measurements uh, broadly. So we need that data, we need it quickly, 
Um, and I think then that will just, as as Jan said, just amplify, uh, sort of amplify the distinctions between those places where using hydrogen makes sense and where those really don't. Steve, on the technology side as well, what are, are we looking at the same type of technology being deployed in all sectors? Or, for example, you mentioned cars. Do we need a, a different type of technology, which is maybe a part of the car to monitor this? Whereas if you're testing pipelines, you know, there's a different approach. How, how do you see the technology in principle expanding? Well, I think we, we again, I would look to methane where uh, a dozen years ago, we didn't have that diversity of technology that could be a used in specific applications. We don't have that for hydrogen now. Um, I just spoke with someone a couple of days ago when I was uh, at, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology talking about somebody who thought they were developing it. So we need a rich uh, ecosystem of new technology so that we can monitor it more closely in a diversity of locations. Currently, that's not possible. Okay. Uh, Jose, you, you spoke about the scientific, uh, the need for scientific clarity and evidence gathering here as well. What, what are you looking for in terms of research programs and that's there now and uh, that need to be funded, that need to be instigated as quickly as possible? Yeah, so I think uh, on, on in terms of research, uh, Steve has just mentioned what is critical, which is uh, um, work on the researchers where they can collect and create robust data sets on how much hydrogen leaks in every kind of single equipment. I think this this is of, of paramount importance. I agree in that we, we have basically no information on this. And, and I think it's going to be also particularly challenging because we are moving, or it seems that we are going to be moving from a system in which we produce and use hydrogen in the same place to a system in which we are going to produce hydrogen in one place, but then using it somewhere else. And we are going to be creating supply chains with uh, new ways of transporting it, uh, compressors, moving into tanks, uh, even maybe uh, filling them in, 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 I hope not in small cars at least, but uh, the, the risk is there. Uh, but uh, perhaps in trucks, uh, we can think uh, in many other applications. And for all these things, we have simply no clue. And, and the thing is that we don't, we don't know, not only we don't have clue, is that we, we, don't, we don't have even any kind of a standard already available for these kind of things. So I think it's, it's not only on the technological side, we also need pre-normative research to inform standards that can that then at some point at some point can inform the regulatory part, which will be the next step and, and probably the, the most challenging one. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Jan, you we don't really know what's happening. The suspicions there that there's leakage, the scale of it's not known. The European Commission has a hydrogen strategy with the hydrogen bank, uh, all these different dynamics. Is everything going a little too fast? Should there be a pause here until it's a better understood what's happening with hydrogen, uh, that the near-term and long-term implications um, could um, off-balance uh, the whole objective? Uh, no, I don't think that's the case. I think we know already that the world uses about 100 million tons of hydrogen and 99% plus of that hydrogen, and these are numbers from the IEA, um, are currently from fossil fuels, unabated, uh, mainly from gas, um, also from coal. That needs to be replaced. It's very difficult to replace most of that with alternatives because it's non-energy uses, things like fertilizer production, where we will need hydrogen. Uh, so clearly, um, you know, low carbon hydrogen, ideally green hydrogen, uh, needs to be available to replace that. So that's, an, for me, that's a very clear no regret option. And even just scaling um, your current green hydrogen 
um, production to those sort of levels requires a massive investment in new infrastructure um, and there are huge challenges ahead. Um, I think um, we don't need to pause. I think we, we should um, you know, take, take a step back and really think about some of the areas that previously have been hyped um, also by parts of the industry as um, you know, having huge potential for hydrogen use. Uh, I think the data that we're now getting and also the slow pace that we're seeing, I mean, we, we're not seeing the cost reductions, we're not seeing the upscale uh, in deployment that um, we were promised, uh, I think should give us um, some, some food for thought and reassess to what extent it is realistic and really focus on the no regret options for now. Uh, make sure we do that well um, and, and then take it from there rather than think about the entire economy and see hydrogen as a silver bullet. I mean, in the latest Net Zero 2050 roadmap from the IEA, um, I think hydrogen takes about 10% um, of the global final energy use as a share. So it's an important energy carrier in the scenario, uh, but it's, 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 not, it's not the majority of final energy use, and we should always look at it in that way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a niche application uh, where there is no other alternative available rather than um, an abundant energy carrier that can be used everywhere for all sorts of things. That clearly doesn't make sense uh, from a, an economic perspective, but it also doesn't make sense, I think, increasingly, as we see uh, from a global warming perspective. Okay, thank you. Steve, if we're to say during the next five years, uh, what's the most suitable policy measure to limit hydrogen emissions? Um, what would your top choice be? I'll ask uh, the other two gentlemen as well. So in the next five years, what's possible to limit the emissions? Yeah, I, I won't speak to policy, but I will speak to the practicalities of it. Um, and I, I would just agree with, with Jan. I mean, we need to focus on those places that no regrets. So replacing existing hydrogen with, with low impact hydrogen um, is, a, is a no regrets. And that's going to take a lot of work and effort. And the key is thinking about this as learning. Right. What we want to do is take these new developments and make sure we're monitoring, we're learning from them so that we can integrate those learnings as we go along. If we do that, we, it's a win win for everyone. Um, but we have to make a commitment to do that. We can't just deploy and then kind of think about it after the fact. All right. Uh, yeah. And same question in terms of uh, policy opportunities. What, what would you put on the table right now? Well, I think there is a there's one question about why is there so little uptake? Um, I think that's one. And the other question, I guess, is how do we make sure we manage the um, impacts of hydrogen on global warming that we just discussed? And I think that the two are quite separate in terms of policy. Um, I think Jose alluded to some of the policies that may be needed um, to make sure we, we do not have um, global warming impact. Um, from hydrogen in, in, in the way that Steve described, which could be you know, fairly significant. Uh, I think the other question is, um, how do we ensure hydrogen uptake actually happens? How do we create a demand driver? Uh, I mean, the main reason why uh, hydrogen buyers are not coming forward is that it's more expensive. You know, it's cheaper to burn fossil fuels or to use um, uh, you know, gray hydrogen or black hydrogen than using green hydrogen or blue hydrogen. So changing the dynamics on the demand side in that way, to me, seems very, very critical. A lot of the discussion in Europe um, has focused on production. You know, how do we produce um, more hydrogen or import more hydrogen? But I think we haven't spent enough time yet on thinking about how we actually create the right conditions to stimulate hydrogen demand in those sectors where we know it's going to be desperately needed. So I think that is, uh, for me, a, a really important question for, for policymakers 
uh, to address the demand side much more and not just focus on on supply. Um, I think giving subsidies for the production of clean hydrogen is, is, is one thing, but I think the other question is really how do you make sure you stimulate demand in the right areas where we know we're going to need lots of hydrogen uh, and need to replace uh, especially existing hydrogen uses that are pretty carbon intensive. Thank you. Jose, same question. Uh, one policy option on the table for the next five years, what would you choose? Thanks. So I, I think uh, Jan has just stepped on the one that I was going to mention, which is the, the issue of demand, because I think we have, as, as he said, to differentiate two things. One is the, uh, concretely on the on the hydrogen leakage part, but also on, on the deployment, because there are some uses in which we are going to need hydrogen, same as we are needing other things that uh, have certain warmer potential, but that we cannot get rid of them in our life. It's not uh, the use of replacing fossil fuels. Um, so I think that the demand side, actually, we, we did a lot of analysis in our latest global hydrogen review specifically on this point and, and prepare some recommendations on the adoption, things like quotas and mandates on those those sectors where we don't have any alternative to hydrogen. And, and these are fertilizers uh, and, and methanol production and things like that. And then I think on the on the other side, uh, uh, I think that the, the policy work on on the on uh, hydrogen leakage has to has to go through innovation and research policies. The, we we really need to build that evidence base, and I think there should be ways to incorporate that innovation angle in in all the uh, programs for the support of low emission hydrogen production, and uh, and also the creation on a spe of specific research programs for building the, the the evidence base. So for me, these are like like the two angles: uh, stimulate the the demand side. On the no regret options uh, first and then we will see on the other options which could be more controversial where the technology brings us and then uh, stimulate uh, research and innovation on on leak detection and understanding how much hydrogen leaks thank you yeah and you mentioned subsidies earlier but uh, stimulating the market in this case as well uh, what do you think uh, you what do you think will really get the market moving in terms of of uh, both sides of the supply and, de and demand you know, is, is this just about providing subsidies to close that investment gap um, do we need uh, different types of underwriting uh, to to enable those who are capable of expanding to scale to get into the market faster how do you see this I mean, there's many options um, available and, and what's appropriate will, will depend on, on the specific context. But just to give you a few examples, uh, I mean, of course, you could require a certain degree of emission reduction um, for specific sectors um, or even an increasing share of green and blue hydrogen, if you wanted to do that, of any hydrogen that's being used. So essentially, you have a, a performance standard that gets tightened over time and that will drive demand. Uh, that's one way. Um, or you use carbon pricing uh, and apply that. Um, I mean, we have the European emissions trading system, of course, uh, but you could also think about something that's a little bit more targeted to really stimulate um, you know, demand for clean hydrogen um, in the sectors uh, where we know it's going to be needed. Uh, this hasn't been done before, of course, with hydrogen. Yeah, this is, this is a, a pretty new um, field where we haven't had lots of policy activity in the past, but we, we have done this, of course, in the power sector very successfully, um, and we've also done it um, uh, no more recently uh, for car manufacturing and introduced performance standards that have to be met. So something similar uh, along these lines will be required. I think if we really want to scale up quickly, of course, the question then becomes about the competitiveness of certain sectors, um, and that's that's a major uh, concern for policymakers. You know, will we then drive out um, you know, certain industry sectors 
uh, to places where perhaps those standards are not in place. Um, but clearly, without anything, uh, it's not going to happen fast enough uh, and it's not going to happen um, at the scale needed. Thank you for that. Um, Steve, can, can you explain just a little bit about why, uh, what the opportunities would be where it comes to uh, financing uh, this market because you're dealing with larger scale uh, businesses and not necessarily going to the consumer, to, to uh, the individual user as well? Does that make it easier to raise the money in this kind of market? Well, again, I'm going to I'm going to talk about what I know, which is how do we finance and how do we get to having the technology necessary to do this well? And there, I think it's really demonstrating that we have a market. Again, we need to match the, the supply and demand. Um, and again, I'm going to pull from the methane example. When when we started looking at methane emissions associated with the natural gas value chain, there were no technologies for most companies to monitor their emissions in any reasonable way. So we actually got some companies to say that we'll buy technology if you can produce it and went out to the technology company and said, look, there's a market, why don't you produce it? So we have to create a whole ecosystem of being able to get the right measurements, not just create the physical objects, but even some of those aren't there. We have to think about things as, as mundane as compressing. You can't just take a natural gas compressor station, use it for hydrogen and not expect it to emit a lot. So you have to worry about slippage. So we need to create a much more robust market for all the elements we need in the ecosystem if we're going to deploy hydrogen. And uh, as Jan said, we shouldn't just be thinking about uh, production credits. We need to have the offtake capacity and we need to have everything in between to do it well. That ecosystem is still just emerging and we need to think about it in a much more robust way than historically governments had. Um, and I think if we do that, uh, we'll start to see some really rapid uh, engagement from a wider range of players, which will allow us to, to do that. I mean, if I just uh, think about the work we're doing with Aerodyne, um, we had to spend, you know, we worked with them hard to demonstrate to them that it was worth their investment in creating this instrument, that there were folks out there who really needed it, because that demand was not clear. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jose, you spoke a lot about uh, research uh, and development as well, which is uh, timely, uh, time consuming, it's costly. Uh, and then we're in the context of uh, a timeline for carbon reduction, for greenhouse gas uh, uh, reduction, that's really tight. You know, how do you accelerate that R&D pipeline? Where does the money need to come from? And uh, you know, back to, to what Steve was saying as well, you know, how do you get the investors uh, to, to really commit to this in the short term and, the, uh, and to get the uptick? Uh, because you know, if you wait 10 years to this, 20 years, and then start deploying technology, uh, you know, there, it's, it's perhaps too late. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I am going to be a bit disruptive with the with the question and, and question actually your first statement that uh, in research it takes a lot of time. Research takes a lot of time because normally they don't have the resources to do it. And we have seen with the development of the COVID vaccine that when they really receive what they need, uh, they act fast. So we we have plenty of really smart people that can find great solutions. So I think the first thing is is to um, is to is to provide the resources that they need to to create this evidence based. But uh, and and actually going back to some of the points that Jan and Steve have, have mentioned. So we are speaking. If we start speaking about these uh, uh, consumers, large consumers of hydrogen that we already exist, already exist to date, they have the capability to create the market for all these kind of things. 
So um, uh, taking the, the example of Steve about the, the compressor, so um, you were not going to put hydrogen in a compressor that uh, a methane compressor because it's lip, also because it cannot operate in the same way, so it's going to broke down at some point. But it's not easy to find uh, a lot of producers of uh, hydrogen compressors or compressors that can uh, be used only with hydrogen. And that's because there's not yet a market. So if you really um, take all these things, because one of the big challenges of scaling this, this market is that, is that uh, we are building completely new supply chains that we have ne never built before. So they are facing a lot of um, challenges on the demand side on the production side we have already mentioned but also on the regulatory side um uh, on on the availability of infrastructure so using these big flagship projects that are going to be funded at the beginning and and asking them to take action on this front on the on the uh, implementation of this type of tools engaging with developers of this type of, of 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 tools so they can um, they can test they can improve them and then can create this this scale for that market i think it is needed and and i think for these really large projects um asking them to start uh, some testing some data collection is a minor uh, additional cost on the project so we are speaking about uh, projects that are on the hundreds of millions and we are speaking about really small amounts for a research group to go there and to test their tools and to collect this data and and then apart from that we need transparency as well uh, and taking the, the example of methane that the, the steve mentioned for many years we didn't have any transparency if we already if if we can say that we have it now on the methane emissions from the from the from industry and and then we can see completely different estimates from international organizations like us or from academia from compared with what industry reports no so i think uh, th these are two things in which we, we have to think how, how they can create the scale for for this type of tools but also how we we can ensure transparency on on their side okay thank you we have a lot of questions i'm going to come to those in just a second but steve just want to ask you in terms of united states and europe and comparison uh, perspectives it, it, does europe deal differently with the, the market making here the regulatory framework uh, compared to the united states or are, is there a difference in uh, development and maturity of this approach well, I'm going to sort of build off of what Jose said to, to indirectly start to get to your answer. Um, so, so he mentioned about the fact of COVID, and metaphors are always challenging. But, but if you look at actually a little closer at COVID, what happened is there was a very large amount of investment made by government before COVID uh, vaccines came out. So they had a platform of knowledge they could build off of, and, and that was what they used to get uh, such a rapid development. And, and, and I agree with them, you know, where there's a will, you can push things a lot faster. But we aren't seeing that uh, commitment in government right now for these issues that we're talking about. They're not um, developing the science, they're not developing the technology. There's a little bit of investment in Europe and, and the US, um, and, and that's about it. We need a lot more of it. We need to recognize, again, that we have to create that platform where we have the knowledge, that we have the researchers doing it to allow us to then rapidly um, deploy it and, and make those investments. Um, there, there, there are some differences in terms of the approaches, but they're really in the infancy in terms of the technology and the science and that foundational piece in both Europe and the US. And, and I would certainly push, uh, as I have in, in both places, that we need to um, uh, catalyze much more rapid investment so that you can meet what the sort of uh, uh, vision that Jose describes, which is that we can quickly adapt as we learn more developing 
these new technologies. It's, it is a bit of a chicken in the egg and we need leadership from government to put that investment so that we all of these both practical, how do you build a compressor better? Um, some people are trying, but it's still in its infancy. We can't afford that. If we're gonna get rapid decarbonization and we're gonna use hydrogen in the right places in the right ways, we need that kind of investment in more of the technology, not just in the subsidies uh, on, in the production or even on the demand side. Okay, thank you. We have a lot of questions, so instead of putting each of the questions to each of you, I'll uh, first of all ask uh, if either of you would like to take the question principally and then see who else wants to follow up as well. Um, so Jasmine Cooper from Imperial College London, question for Steve. Uh, are there tools, technologies readily available now to detect and measure hydrogen and would there be issues in detecting, measuring hydrogen emissions when hydrogen is injected into gas or biogas streams? You Partly already, I think. So, Go ahead. so I'll take the, sure, I'll take the, the second part of the question. No, there's yeah. no problem. We can do a joint measurements of hydrogen and methane. Um, and uh, we've actually done those uh, with the Aerodyne instrument in a, some a testing of a beta instrument at the METEC facility in Colorado that the Department of Energy created. So we used uh, known amounts um, of methane and combinations of methane, hydrogen, and then hydrogen alone and it can do it very well. So I think that's very doable. Um, with the Aerodyne instrument, we hope, I'm, I'm a big fan. I talk to anybody who wants to talk about new technology, about finding more technologies. Um, and uh, I don't think, we're, we're finding that we can take the, the last decade of development in how we measure methane. There are differences, but it applies really effectively. So you can, take the models that have been developed, the observation systems that have matured, and you can bring those to hydrogen. We'll be testing it this year across industrial settings as well, but I am very confident based on the early results that we'll be able to do this very rapidly and to Jose's earlier point, be able to really deploy it much quicker than people might imagine. But we need the commitment both from the companies, we're seeing a lot of it, but we need more of it, and we need commitment to, to produce more instruments. Okay, thank you. Question from AK. Regarding the combustion of H2, for example, substitution of fossil gases, are there any implications regarding emissions? And does combustion of H2 uh, lead to higher nitrogen dioxide emissions? Who's up for that? Jan. Well, I'm not a, um, an emissions expert. In, in uh, the, I think what is clear is that hydrogen is sometimes described as um, yeah, the, the only product um, that it will release is is uh, is water and that's clearly not the case if you combust hydrogen there are nox emissions and um, i think it's important to be aware of that um, there's different papers on the quantity of the nox emissions and how they compare to burning fossil gas um, uh, but i think the important point is is there are nox emissions and yeah, of course, are harmful, especially when, um, you know, for example, hydrogen is used for cooking. Uh, you know, there still be NOx emissions or when you burn hydrogen in cars or boilers um, in, in, in a city environment, um, that, that still causes uh, you know, the same problems as NOx emissions from uh, combusting fossil fuels. Um, but maybe it's a question for Steve or Jose to answer um, as to whether the NOx emissions are higher or lower. Um, um, I, I don't want to make a call on that. I think um, Jose and Steve are much more qualified to answer that. Thank you. Jose or Steve, quick uh, I, response I am, to that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to compliment. So, and, and actually I'm going to take again a point raised, I think by the three of us, which is the, to use hydrogen in the right places uh, and link it to this point. Yes, the NOx emissions on, on hydrogen combustion are higher than in the case of natural gas because hydrogen flame uh, is, uh, takes place at higher temperatures and that results in higher NOx emissions. And taking the point on of Jan or of the issue of using hydrogen in boilers or, or uh, in cooking appliances, that's a health issue. And that's a, a clear example on, on places in which we have better alternatives to hydrogen. And we, will, we should not be using it. It should be kind of the last case scenario if really we cannot deploy electric heating in these cases. So um, uh, the issue of hydrogen generating NOx can be much more easily um, um, addressed when we have a, a large turbine for regenerating backup power, which is still questionable if hydrogen is the best alternative, probably not. But again, I think it's, 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 it's an area in which we could have a bit more debate and I will be a bit more in favor than in the case of buildings. But in that case, you can deal it. You can really deal with those NOx emissions. We already have the technologies to, uh, to address those emissions and minimize them. But we don't have the technology for minimizing those emissions in cookers or, or in, or in uh, small boilers at home. So, so there, there is a, a clear, a clear example in which we should not prioritize the use of hydrogen. It should be the last resource in certain cases in which we really cannot use all the other cleaner and more efficient and less costly alternatives. All right. Thank you. A question from Alex Barnes. Given we are unlikely to hit net zero by 2050, will the short-term effects of hydrogen leakage make things worse? And what does that mean for how and when we deploy hydrogen? Steve. Sure. Um, so it really depends. I mean, this is the problem. I can't give a straight answer. It depends on where you're using it, how much your emissions are, how you're producing um, the hydrogen. Uh, and right now we don't have enough data to say, will it decrease the decarbon uh, the value and, and make the path harder, not necessarily worse than fossil fuels? Absolutely. Um, and how much worse is the, is, is the challenge? Um, so we can't afford that. That's why we've really focused on how do we quantify it and then minimize those losses so that we can maximize the decarbonization potential. And I think all of us are saying that we want to use hydrogen and we have to use it in the right places in the right way. And to do that, um, we have to get the hydrogen down and we have to do it quickly so that we can use hydrogen between now and 2050 to be an effective tool in the arsenal that we have. Thank you. Question from Michelle. Uh, Jose, maybe we'll take this one. Uh, Michelle Tynan from Global Agriculture Methane Manager, EDF. Do you think hydrogen production from biomethane uh, created in anaerobic digesters on livestock farms makes sense? Economically, it might only make sense with upcoming US incentives or tax credits, but what about ecologically? Well, I think that's uh, that's one of the clear examples of uh, if you do it right, it could be. If you do it wrong, it's going to be terrible, because we are starting from uh, anaerobic digestion of of uh, products to produce methane, and that's that's. Uh, I mean, we have uh, similar to the case of natural gas experiences in which we started deploying this technology without really understand and not understanding the consequences so i still remember actually i started working on this technology when i when i finished the, the university and i remember to visiting uh, facilities in which this was done in open ponds so basically we were releasing 
tons and tons of methane freely into the atmosphere. So this is a clear example that if we do things right and, and we understand the science behind, behind of everything that we do, we are most likely to do things right. So I think if we produce it from biomethane um, that is uh, produced on, on closed ponds, using the best available technologies to minimize, if not completely avoid methane emissions from all the biomass biogas uh, plant, then uh, uh, we use it to produce hydrogen in an adequate equipment, uh, minimizing, so implementing leak detection and repair techniques and protocols and methodologies. That could make sense. But if we don't take all these measures uh, uh, from the very beginning, it could be uh, an absolute disaster from the from the point of uh, from the ecological point of view. Thank you. Excellent answer. And a question from uh, Alexander Colombier. Uh, from AFNO, the French standardization body in uh, Senelec and ISO IEC. Long title. Thank you, Alexander. Uh, would there be a need to standardize ways of quantifying measuring these emissions on the value chain, Mr. Regulatory Expert? Jan, over to you for that one. Uh, I think ultimately, yes. Um, in, I think it's going to be important that there's a degree of standardization and reliability. Um, so we we, you know, we know what what kind of uh, emissions are associated with with hydrogen, um, depending on the source and where it's from. Uh, I mean, we know also, of course, um, using an analogy of um, the Dieselgate scandal, um, that just by having standards and testing doesn't necessarily guarantee that you get the results that you want. Um, so I think we we need to learn the lessons from that and make sure the data is reliable. Um, of course, we also know from satellite data that uh, some of the methane emissions that are being reported on the ground um, do not match what we can see with satellite data. So there's a discrepancy there too. Um, so I think, yes, we, we do need a degree of standardization um, and uh, to make sure we have you know, reliable data and can compare and contrast uh, between different types um, and sources of hydrogen. Thank you. Uh, question for Steve from Johannes Hamp. Uh, Steve, by when do you expect to have first results from measurements that can be publicly shared and which applications will you first focus on? Uh, Johannes is from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Thanks for the question. Steve. Yeah, so I, I can't give you an exact time. We're working as fast as we can. I would hope that we can um, present some results by the end of this coming year, 2024. Um, because we do need to make sure we go through rigorous peer review, um, but I would hope we could get something out that quickly. It'll depend a little bit on how uh, smoothly the deployment of the instrument and our learnings go. We're working with, as I mentioned, a group of different academics, both um, in, the, in the United States and in Europe, and we're ta having talks in, in Asia as well. Um, but our goal is to get it out absolutely as fast as we can. Uh, but we will not uh, put the, the data out without it being uh, peer-reviewed first. Thank you. And uh, for Steve also, do we get the slides afterwards? Peter Schallart asks. Absolutely. Yes. And most of that uh, is presented in a paper uh, Lisa Akko and myself published in 2022. You can find it in the journal uh, Atmospheric uh, Physics and Chemistry. Thank you. Uh, the presentation link is at the top there. You can see it. Thank you to Anna for that. And then we go to a question from Mark uh, de Frenes. So this discussion focuses on the no regret strategy, confirms that the P2P vision, green renewable power hydrogen storage, power by burning hydrogen is dead. 
good to confirm it once for all. Um, is that correct? Steve, Jan? Well, I, I would, I go ahead. Jose? Well, I, Jose? So I would, yeah. No, I, I, just if you could repeat the question because I, I didn't sure. understand the, the whole thing, yeah. Sure, okay. So this discussion, the focus on the no regret strategy. Uh, Mark says it confirms that the P2P vision of green renewable power, uh, hydrogen storage and power by burning hydrogen is dead. Uh, can you confirm that once and for all? Okay, Steve, if you, if you want to, to kick off, I, I'm happy to compliment. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think we have to be careful about those absolutes, and Jose mentioned it. Sure. The degree to which it's a backup um, for renewables for during a Duncan Flauta or some other period, I, I think we still don't know. Um, it's one of the options. We can debate whether it's a viable. I think it's going to depend, right? Very geography, the 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 system stability and the availability varies enormously across geographies, and so I think we have to be a little careful in making categorical statements. Uh, I would not be looking for hydrogen as a primary power source you know, at scale, but I I do think that we still need to look at this option of using it as a, for lack of better term, storage mechanism. Okay, thank you. Uh, anything else to add there? So. Yeah, so well, I, I just wanted to, yeah. to say exactly exactly the same point, and, and I think okay. Steve brought the, the, the key element here, which is the, the um, differences in depending on the geography. So, and just to give you a number from the IEA, when we look at our sure. net zero emission scenario, we see that uh, the the role of hydrogen in, in power generation is practically minimal. I, I think it's less than 2% or less than 1.5%, which is minimal, okay. but still, in some regions, it can play a significant, a more significant role than that that one percent. Okay, Delia Villagrasa asks, what about using H two for RE storage to compensate for seasonal RE production variability? Could you explain your views on the role of H two for that? Uh, Delia is a climate and energy consultant at the Lead Lead Cool Heating Coalition. Who wants to go with that? Related to the previous one, it's, it's, it's exactly the, 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 the same point. Okay. No, the, the, Depending on the geography, it can play a role and it can be important. And, and, and another aspect that I wanted to mention, maybe that role will be minimal, but when we take into account how much hydrogen demand that can create, that, that's important. Because if we see uh, the, the, the share of hydrogen demand of power generation in our scenarios, it's not negligible. Mm -hmm. Whereas its role in generating that power is quite negligible. So I think we, we have to, to take an approach here on, on two points. What's the role on that and, and how large can be the business that 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 we, uh, that, that uh, role of hydrogen in power generation can create? Thank you. Jan, question for you. Alex Barnes, independent consultant, said, what are the panel's views on current hydrogen standards in terms of greenhouse gas accounting, for example, in the EU, UK and US? Uh, yeah. Brian, could I just come in on the the, the sure, letter please. question? The question from the previous, um, uh, yeah, I don't know who, who asked the question, but I think um, from my perspective, it's going to be important to have some form of dispatchable generation. That's very clear in all of the modeling that's been done. 
on decarbonizing the power sector. And for seasonal storage, I don't think there are that many options right now on the table. And hydrogen clearly looks as a very promising option. So I would don't say I don't think it's dead. Uh, I think we still need to look into it. Um, but of course, it's not commercialized yet. You know, to my knowledge, there is no single um, commercially operating power plant in the world that runs on 100% hydrogen. Uh, so we need to make sure we can actually you know, get the technology to, to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, but I think there's clearly a, a role there potentially for hydrogen to, to not to provide bulk power, but to really help balance a more variable supply side uh, in the power sector. Thank you. And a uh, question to Steve. Is there any initiative to fight hydrogen emissions and standardize hydrogen measurements such as OGMP 2.0 or methane guiding principles? Steve. Uh, I'm not aware of any right now. Uh, obviously, I think as was uh, talked about before, we would, uh, I think Jan mentioned that I could envision that coming uh, soon, but we need to learn a lot more. Uh, you know, we have to get more data. That's why I was uh, somewhat equivocal on exactly when the data will come out. As we do make measurements, we'll learn more. As we learn more, we figure out how to do it better. And we have to go through that process. We could not design a system right now and have confidence in it. And 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 so we have to do go through that effort. And I think what we can learn from uh, OGMP 2.0 and uh, methane guiding principles is that we need that kind of system and we need to across uh, both countries and uh, different uh, use cases and different prov uh, providers, we need to start thinking about how we would develop that and bring that into uh, existence uh, at some time in the not too distant future. Okay, thank you. A uh, question from Luca Petko uh, from the Bankwatch Romania Association to Jan, first of all. Uh, the EU hydrogen strategy sees, it, uh, sees it, uh, its electricity production and heating after 2030. Also, the taxonomy criteria states that gas uh, PP should be hydrogen uh, ready. How do you see this in the light of your intervention to limit uh, the use, uh, to limit impact? Well, I think hydrogen readiness is um, a pretty fluid concept. And uh, in, in you know, for example, if you install hydrogen ready boilers uh, in buildings instead of installing uh, technologies that already reduce carbon today, there's a clear risk that that hydrogen will never come along and you're just going to continue to emit. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we just talked about the power sector here um, uh, and the potential role of hydrogen. Uh, you know, clearly, it's going to be important that any new uh, gas-fired generation that we build uh, to to make sure we move that towards a place where it could burn uh, hydrogen um, in larger quantities and ideally 100%. Uh, so it really depends, I think, on the application uh, that we're talking about, whether hydrogen readiness makes sense. Uh, but just under the label of hydrogen readiness uh, to construct lots of new fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, I think is a very dangerous strategy because it relies on um, availability of hydrogen at a certain price. Um, and I have my doubts whether uh, we can get uh, an abundance of cheap uh, hydrogen uh, in, in the way that I think some, some people in the industry hope. And I think there's also, of course, uh, and that's important, I think it's, it's not just a scientific debate. There are clearly vested interests at play, at play here too. You know, um, the, the companies that currently have an existing business model um, around fossil fuels to some extent have pushed hydrogen uh, because it's it's a lifeline you know, to extend um, the lifetime of the assets a little longer. Um, so we have to dis disentangle some of those arguments that are clearly self-interested 
uh, from the scientific analysis here. Thank you. Uh, question from Mike Parr. The use of H2 to decarb agricultural machinery, are you really going to use batteries, he asks. Uh, seems one of the most uh, obvious applications. Uh, a niche application, no, for agricultural machinery, uh, no agricultural machinery, no food. Uh, Jose, any quick comments on that? Yeah, I can say that one actually is one of the areas where we have seen some um, companies uh, trying to to adapt existing uh, uh, agricultural machinery to use, to use hydrogen. It's one of the very difficult ones to electrify, but it's not a massive business, and and that sometimes uh, creates a problem. I mean, going back to the to the case of cars, although I think everyone in the call agrees that cars, hydrogen cars, is not the way to go. But it's, it's one of the sectors that actually can create the scale, and that's why some companies have focused on on that. But in agricultural machinery, it's, it's, it's not that easy to create that 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 scale. You you don't have millions of machines in every in every country, so that's one of the of the challenges. And it's actually a challenge that can be replicated in practically every uh, every reasonable use of hydrogen of hydrogen derivatives in transport. So we don't have millions of uh, big um, um, uh, ships around the world. We don't have millions of planes where we can use a hydrogen derivative. So that, that's one actually of the of the big technological challenges that many of these hydrogen technologies, even making a lot of sense, may may face in the near future. Okay, Michael, follow-up question, maybe you want to take that as well, Jose. Why do H2 projects need to be large scale? He says, I'm doing one now that is MW class and local, using local renewables, and the H2 will be used locally for transport and heating. Do we need to go big scale, Jose? We need to go big, big scale, uh, not for transport and heating. I don't want to be repetitive, but uh, we, we really need to go big scale because the, the, one of the, the, the key challenge that's today low emission hydrogen, call it blue or green, with the, the challenge that they are facing is the cost gap with their unabated alternatives. And the only way to start closing those, that gap, well, of course, is the policy action. With policy action, we can and facilitate in finance. That's an option. But also scaling up the technology. So if we produce uh, some small electrolyzers, uh, almost handmade in a small workshop, it's going to be way less, way, way more costly than producing big machines in completely automatized and optimized large-scale manufacturing facilities. So that's the reason why we need to go uh, big scale. Of of course, this has to be done uh, progressively. We cannot install tomorrow one, two, three gigawatts of electrolysis in, in any plant. Um, we need to learn how to do that. The largest electrolyzers in the world have never gone beyond 100 megawatts. Well, very, very in the past uh, in certain uses, but that that uh, that business model is not yet anymore. So uh, that we, we need a challenge, but we really need to create that scale and go big. Okay, thank you. Another couple of questions, and then we're going to go to our wrap-up for the soon. If you have a final question, please send it in right now. We don't have much more time left. Eva Hennig asks, Steve, uh, natural hydrogen could be a source in the future. What is your opinion on mining it to also reduce any emissions occurring from these deposits? Steve. Well, certainly that's something uh, that we need to be looking at, um, but we're still in very, very early days. So there's a lot of, it doesn't come pure by a long shot. In many cases, it's the minority component that you can find. Separating it, controlling it, mining it is all a lot of unanswered questions. It's something we certainly should be looking at because of the embodied energy, of course, would be avoided. Uh, but it is not a given that we'll be able to produce it at the scales that make a difference. 
I, I do want to jump in on the last uh, answer that Jose made, um, just to add to it. We have to be really careful when we talk about deploying hydrogen in these cases, let's say with the transport of the housing. Because if we look at the alternative case for that, where we take those same green electrons and we use them for those two uses, what you'll find is the rate of decarbonization goes down much dramatically. So that the hydrogen is actually not the best option in that case by a lot, by multiples. And we often don't apply that kind of rigorous thinking to make sure that in fact, we're not creating slower rates of decarbonization. And the key here is that time matters. We have to do this quickly. We have to use hydrogen to get quick answers and we have to use these systems and we have to avoid ending up getting stuck on the the individual tool in this case hydrogen and in the process doing uh slowing things down thank you uh just quick comment if anybody wants to on this uh, remark by jenny uh Semmler. and which just disappeared off my screen and i'll come back to that in a second so antonio uh Vulpio ask will the construction of latest generation hydrogen pipelines made of thermoplastic materials contribute to the mitigation of hydrogen leakage emissions into the atmosphere as part of the safe transportation of hydrogen in pipelines. Who wants to have a go at that? Jose. Well, I'm happy to, to, to start. Um, I think, I think um, it, building from the, what we have said from the very beginning, we don't have evidence, we don't know how much hydrogen leaks on pipes. It seems that these new, ma new materials enhanced will be better, but we don't have an evidence to support that. Uh, but obviously, if they are designed to operate with hydrogen, they will probably materials well more, well more adapted than, uh, to hydrogen than steel pipes that, that can suffer from many other things that can actually end up promoting polymetric leakage. So I will say it's very, 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 very probable but I don't have enough scientific evidence to say, yes, for sure, this is better. Okay, thank you. Is a quick comment for any of you on Jenny's remark, which is, uh, aren't there already hydrogen quantification measurements being performed within pilot projects? For example, the German project H2 Infra uh, did permeation tests on H2 distribution pipelines and service lines and hydrogen leakage measurements on flange connections at a reducing and metering station. Anybody able to comment on that? Happy to jump in. So there may be some individual measurements of existing exposed pieces of equipment because you can go very close to it and then can try and determine it with slow response instruments. We know from methane, which we've demonstrated, those measurements will not give us a good indication of the system level losses. And there's no reason to believe. So that's useful, but it's by no means uh, gives us the data that we really understand what the losses are from any kind of system level be and 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 in normal natural conditions. So most pipes, if you talk about pipes, are buried. Uh, if we're talking about distribution, we need to look at them in a buried environment. We need to look at industrial processes where they're working as part of an industrial production system. Those are the kinds of measurements we do not have. We have very small scale individual component measurements. Useful, but not very insightful. Okay, thank you. Our last question. This one goes to Jan. Uh, would more regulation from uh, Rada uh, Kajast, uh, would more regulation on especially blue H2 production help to give more incentives for green H2 production? I would think yes, um, it would, because it would, well, it depends how the green hydrogen is being produced, of course, but if it was zero emissions uh, green hydrogen, 
just from renewable sources, of course, there's a premium uh, for a, you know, lower carbon content, uh, lower carbon emissions associated with the hydrogen. Um, and if you have stricter regulation on, on blue hydrogen, presumably that would make blue hydrogen more expensive. Um, uh, but of course, yeah, without actually having done this anywhere um, yet for a long time, it's difficult to, to, to see how it would play out in reality. But in principle, I think having regulation on blue would make green hydrogen more competitive. Thank you. We have lots more questions. I think we have more questions for this program than pretty much any other that I can remember in recent times. So thank you to our audience. It's uh, amazing participation. Sorry I couldn't get to all the questions today. Uh, we're pretty much out of time as it is. I hope that's useful. Some of those questions maybe uh, the panel can follow up individually later. So let me just go to the, the wrap up and ask each of you for your final remarks and the takeaways uh, for today. Uh, Jan, you'd like to go first? Yeah, sure. I mean, this topic of uh, the global warming impact of hydrogen is pretty new, right? It's it's not something we've discussed uh, for a very long time. And I think it's 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 an important part of the debate we had about hydrogen, which uh, I don't think should lead to the conclusion that, oh, we should never deploy green hydrogen or blue hydrogen. I think it really, I think, supports the argument I made early on in my contribution, I think, to this debate today that a very nuanced and evidence-led approach uh, is the right approach rather than one that sees hydrogen as the solution for all of the problems that we're trying to solve. Uh, and I think we're moving towards that uh, gradually now that uh, reality hits the ground. Thank you so much. Jose. Yeah, I think uh, my my final, final remark will go on, on the topic of uh, of we need action on this and, and we need to uh, increase our efforts and that goes from the private sector we have the, the, um, discussed some options but also on the government sector oh, sorry on the, on the government action we really need to um, facilitate and provide resources for the research for the development for innovation of techniques of uh, technologies of methodologies and and it's important now because as i said i don't think we are going to see a significant impact of hydrogen, but this is just a gut feeling. I cannot back up with evidence because I don't have the evidence to say that or the contrary. And when we are going to, to uh, address this massive problem of, of the uh, climate, change, climate change, and we need to scale these technologies in such a short time, we need to make uh, well-informed, evidence-informed decisions. So I, I think I, my, my final remark is, is a bit of begging governments to put the programs in place and to put the research efforts in place and the industry to take this seriously because I think their image can be at stake if they don't do it. And, and then we find ourselves in 10 year time in a dramatic situation. Thank you so much. Uh, Steve, last word. Well, I, I would just endorse what uh, Jan and Jose said. Um, we really do need to make sure that we get the investments in the work so that we can make the right decisions, deploy hydrogen in effective places, and understand where it's not going to be an effective tool. Um, to do that, we need data, and we need to recognize that we need to do all of this quickly, as we talked about. We need to make, we need to make decarbonization the problem of today, not of tomorrow, but we can't do that unless we make the investments now in getting the data and ensuring we make effective decisions. And um, I think we're all in alignment on that. Right, thank you so much. Uh, excellent uh, detailed discussion. Thanks to 
uh, Jose, Steve and to Jan. Our thanks also to the Environmental Defence Fund uh, for supporting the programme today. Uh, you don't see them but they're here uh, right in front of me in the studio and, and behind us as well in, in the office here. Uh, Anna and uh, Juliette, uh, the pre preparation for the production team today with Pablo, Zoran and Wilson uh, here on uh, technical production in the studio and uh, our social media team uh, somewhere just behind me are right here as well. So uh, thanks to our audience for a super participation. We really value uh, your content today as well. I'm Brian McGuire. Good afternoon.